0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to our grand round series. Uh, we have uh, an outstanding uh, pres- presentation today by one of our uh, up and coming uh, STAR junior faculty. You'll, you'll hear about her from, uh, if, 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 in just a second, from our chief of uh, emergency, emergency medicine, hospital medicine and associate clinical chair, Dr. Sekharan. Uh Before I start, I just want to uh, begin with some uh, some breaking news. Uh, some of you have already have heard this from CNN and others. Uh, that the FDA has decided to put a hold on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Uh, the report is that uh, six cases were reported of thrombosis uh, in, uh, in women exclusively, uh, 18 to 48. Uh, now, it's still a rare event. It's about one in a million since about six million doses have been given of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. But the FDA is investigating. And what I would say is that the, the system actually worked. We have a surveillance system that that picks up uh, you know, potential side effects. And uh, so in, in a way we have to give a lot of credit to the FDA and the agencies that are looking at this critically and making decisions in real time. Now, again, I uh, we will have additional information. I know Dr. Schreiber will be focusing on this on Friday, providing additional information for you. This has not been associated with either Moderna or Pfizer. Uh, we've given uh, in the U.S. you know well over uh, 100 million doses of those vaccines and, and, and the surveillance systems have not picked up anything related to thrombosis. So it's, it appears to be related to the adenoviral vector uh, and, and some uh, antiplatelet antibodies that are that are uh, being generated as a result of the virus. Uh, I want to emphasize that for most people, this is not a problem. Uh, and so if you have, or if you know of a patient that has received Johnson & Johnson vaccine uh, and, and they're beyond the, the two weeks post-vaccination, there's no risk of any any additional problems as far as we know Uh, and it seems to be a very rare event so you're going to have to probably uh, provide some reassurance to the patients that have received that if you have received the vaccine now here in our clinics uh, we have not given uh, johnson and johnson vaccine we have exclusively focused on using uh, the pfizer product and the reason for that is that it's uh, approved for 16 and over Uh, we have vaccinated a lot of kids here with uh, underlying conditions uh, we will continue to do so with uh, with the Pfizer product, which is approved for 16 and over. So more to come on that, but I just wanted to share that with you as the news are breaking through. Today, we're, we're going to have a, a great presentation by Ali McDermott, uh, but to introduce her, we have Dr. Sekharan. And I just want to say a couple of words about Anand because uh, Anand is, uh, first of all, he's a great friend and colleague. Uh, he is uh, Associate Clinical Chair. Uh, so we get together frequently uh, on a weekly basis to talk about... Uh, all the events that happen at an academic center. And and for me to have somebody of his quality, uh, of of his common sense and and excellence uh, is just really amazing. And, And I've been so proud to see how the hospital medicine service has evolved from many years when I was one of the hospitals. Imagine that, you know, this infectious disease guy, they actually made me do hospital medicine. Uh, this is about 18, 18 years ago, 19 years ago. They wouldn't let me back in there now. Uh, but uh, And Anand was here back then, and uh, we were one of the uh, the originals. Uh, I went in a different direction. Uh, Anand built uh, really an empire in hospital medicine, and he's now one of the national authorities. Uh, in, and he, in fact, developed uh, one of the co-developers of the board of, of the, that actually licenses now uh, and uh, the folks that are do, doing hospital medicine. Uh, I think all of you would agree that what we have here is truly exceptional. And, and one of the qualities for Anand is that he brings the best people he can possibly bring. And the number of uh, amazing junior faculty, mid-career faculty that he has in the division is just really incredible. Uh, each one of them has uh, their own uh, specific strengths and, 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 the, uh, and, you know, the, and they wanna always push uh, the academic levels uh, in teaching and, and research uh, to ways that we haven't seen here before. And I give Anand a lot of credit for that. So Anand, thank you for what you do for us, for our hospital in so many ways. I'm just enormously proud to be your partner in this journey and and thank you for continuing to do everything with excellence. Uh, So I'm gonna ask him to introduce Dr. Dr. McDermott
1: and then we'll have questions at the end, Anand. Thank you Juan for those very kind words. I remember uh, when the former chair, Dr. Paul Dworkin uh, said to me, Anand, we're going to have to free up some of Juan's time for research. So I had to take him off clinical service uh, quite a bit and look at how far he's come. So thank you for those really, really kind words. But the focus today is not on me. It's on Dr. Uh, Allison McDermott. Um, So I wanted to uh, take a few minutes to just introduce her. As Juan alluded to, she's clearly one of the shining stars in our division. And I think she has a really uh, thought-provoked... Provoking topic for you uh, today for Grand Rounds. So Dr. McDermott began her medical career as a Husky, excelling as one of our very own Yukon medical students. Uh, very few people know this, but she won the Lyman Stowe Award, uh, which uh, is similar to the skill set that she's going to talk about today. It's an award given for community service, humanity, and cultural responsiveness. After medical school, she made a bold move and chose to uh, do her pediatric training in my neck of the woods, uh, moving to the left coast, as we say, and trained at, uh, in her pediatric residency at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Uh, she chose the field of pediatric hospital medicine and chose to stay on at CHLA for her PHM fellowship, which at that time was a fairly new fellowship for, for a young field, as we know. Uh, and we, when we recruited her, I remember very distinctly one of her mentors saying, Dr. McDermott is one of the top 5% of any trainee Uh, this person had ever trained. And that's no surprise uh, when you meet her and work with her. Um, In that amazing recruitment year, we were able to recruit as well her co-fellow, Dr. Melanie Rudnick, who is in our group now. I don't think Jennifer, the fellowship director, has ever forgiven me for taking her two best fellows in one year. After arrival here at Connecticut Children's, Dr. McDermott has been an amazing member of the team. She's been outstanding clinically but also has become an educational leader. She's completed a master's in academic medicine and now assists Dr. Crowley serving as the assistant pediatric clerkship director. She serves on multiple national groups for PHM fellowship as we await our own ability to start a PHM fellowship here at Connecticut Children's. And finally, another skill has evolved uh, for Dr. McDermott um, which plays into the topic today. Through fate or circumstance, or possibly because we are working her way too much clinically, she has found herself in a number of uh, challenging clinical and teaching situations in which difficult conversations were required. These span the gamut of end of life discussions, uh, working with uh, challenging families, and working with struggling learners. She approaches these situations with a poise, grace, and humility that are truly remarkable. I've personally learned a lot from her. So please join me now in welcoming Dr. Allison McDermott as she shares her insights. Thank you.
2: Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Salazar and Dr. Sakharan for your kind introduction. I'm really truly honored to be invited today to speak with you about a topic that's near and dear to my heart, something that has evolved and grown as Dr. Sakharan was alluded to over the course of my training and my junior facultyhood thus far. And I hope it's something that is, though non-clinical in nature, really widely applicable to everyone here at Connecticut Children's who's tuning in and listening later on as we work in teams, as we work with patients and families, as we work with each other, and as we go home to our families and loved ones. Navigating a difficult conversation at work can be a challenge. Um, And so I hope that some of the tips and tools that I've learned throughout my studies and my experience thus far, you're able to take with you and to apply into your situations. So I have no specific conflicts of interest to disclose. I will be talking about some reading materials and some books that have really influenced how I approach navigating difficult conversations. And I'll show you those titles and um, book titles at the end of the, the talk in my references. But unfortunately, I make no royalties from anyone who buys the book. So by the end of this presentation, I hope that you'll all be a little bit better at explaining how the principles of crucial conversations can aid in addressing concerns between individuals you'll also be able to better describe how facilitative feedback strategies allow for building trust in professional relationships. And finally, to close on a topic that has been more influenced lately in my clinical work, discuss how the wish-worry-wonder model can aid clinicians in raising concerns about a patient's clinical deterioration sensitively and respectfully. And so as I begin the talk today, I wanted to open with one of my favorite authors, Stephen Covey. He wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and has actually gone on to write The Eighth Habit prior to his death in 2012. So he opens the book that I'm going to talk about today, Crucial Conversations with this foreword, with this quote, from my own work with organizations, including families, and from my own experience, I've come to see that there are a few defining moments in our lives and careers that make all the difference. Many of these defining moments come from what we call crucial or breakthrough conversations with important people in emotionally charged situations where the decisions that we make take us down several roads, each of which lead to an entirely different destination. And so I hope that that couple of sentences frames for you a little bit about what we'll be talking about today. These really important conversations where emotions are running high and the stakes are really, really high. How can we navigate those? And more importantly, how do we meet in the middle? How do we successfully come together to be unified in our decision to move forward? So if you haven't read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I highly recommend it. Um, My favorite of the seven habits is seek first to understand, then be understood. And I hope that that underlies um, a little bit of our talk today. So what is a crucial conversation? I wanna step back and say, the title of the talk was actually Navigating Difficult Conversations. Why have I switched so, far, so early on in the talk and called it something like Crucial Conversations? There's a lot of synonyms for what a difficult conversation can be. And if we were live, I would ask you guys to throw them all out. And I'm sure I would get responses such as a hard conversation, a challenging conversation, um, things, words that are picking up on conflict and discomfort and strife and discord, disagreement. But I wanna move away from some of those purely negative connotations and really work towards moving the conversation around the word crucial, something important, something paramount, something that is so basically important that if we're not able to get through it in a way that's working together, we're not able to move forward. So there's examples of crucial conversations that are personal and there are many that are professional. So some of the examples you see on the slide that are professional are the first bullet, talking to a coworker who behaves offensively or makes suggestive comments. So those are moments that are not to be walked past. Those are not to be left, they're important. There's a lot of emotion, there's a lot on the line there. That's an example where you have to seize the moment, you have to have the hard conversation, right? talking to a team member who isn't keeping up on their commitments. We've all been in a situation where we're working on a group project and someone isn't pulling their weight. We can either choose to pick up their slack and grumble and harbor resentment, or we can choose to deal with it and try to work better as a team. But also, crucial conversations can be quite personal in nature, I think one of the classic examples in a personal situation would be talking to a loved one about a substance abuse problem. Staging an intervention, that's the prototypical and perhaps most extreme version of a crucial conversation, but gathering people together to sit down and speak about something that's very, very important without letting that moment pass everyone by. On a somewhat lighter note, asking your in-laws to quit interfering in your parenting skills. I think we've all had moments where we've been a little bit overburdened by other people's opinions. Um, And we all view our parenting and raising our children as something that's quite important to us and something we should have autonomy in doing. Um, So as you look through this slide, know that there are plenty of personal and professional opportunities to have crucial conversations. And these probably occupy 5 to 10% of the conversations we have in a day. So Dr. Segaron and I may disagree about what flavor of croissant is the best, but I will take his chocolate croissant. I will take his almond croissant. It doesn't really much matter to me. Uh, We may disagree about the sports teams we root for, but at the end of the day, that's not what matters. Crucial conversations are not just about us disagreeing. They're really about us coming from a place where we care so much and we really want the outcome to be the best, but we often don't see eye to eye on exactly how that's going to happen. So how can we dialogue productively when the stakes are so, so high? Let's engage in crucial conversations. So the three components of a crucial conversation, as you may have picked up on so far, are that the stakes of the issue are very high the opinions surrounding how we best approach the issue vary. And the emotions that run within the individuals involved in the conversation are very strong. You may recognize a crucial conversation from the list that was on the slide previous, but you may also say, I'm not really really sure. Those are very specific situations, Dr. McDermott, that hasn't really come up for me. How is that so widely applicable? You may also look back into your life or look forward into the future, perhaps that may even be easier. And to think about a conversation where you seem to be having the same conversation over and over. Maybe it's with your partner at home or your spouse, your loved ones, Maybe it's with your children. Maybe it's an issue that your team has been discussing and never really seem to move forward on. And so you may be asking yourself in a meeting or at home, exasperatedly, why do we keep talking about this? And that's an issue or a conversation that I'd like to call stuck. There's no movement forward. There's disagreement, there's discord, the stakes are still high, the opinions still vary, the emotions are strong, but we haven't been able to convert that into a united decision on how to move the issue forward, move the conversation forward. There hasn't been a commitment or there hasn't been accountability about that commitment enough to actually make and effect some change. So how do we, prepare. The goals of a crucial conversation, first and foremost, is to prepare for these high-stakes situations, right? We, as human beings, we have a fight-or-flight response. We know physically if we are threatened, we will engage in an aggressive stance. We're going to fight back. We're going to protect ourselves, defend ourselves, or we're going to retreat to preserve our safety, Research out of Yale, Dr. Amy Armstead, shows that psychological stress can also induce the exact same responses on fMRI scanning for psychological stress as for physical stress. So we at baseline have an instinctual urge, reflex, to engage in fighting or flighting, even when it's psychological. And so what does psychological fighting or flighting look like? We'll get to that on the next slide. How can we transform our anger and our hurt into productivity? How can we make it safe to talk about pretty much anything? We really want to be able to cultivate a culture of safety within our families and within our team, within our workplace. And finally, the last goal of Crucial Conversations is to be able to be persuasive, not abrasive. I'm not here to stand up to you to say, just let everybody win. Because we won't, we won't actually make the best decision if we abdicate our responsibility. Because your thoughts and your opinions, your facts, the way you see the world is very valid. And you should be allowed to have that to be part of the conversation and not to retreat. So we don't want to fight, and we don't want to fight flight either. So how do we have a crucial conversation? There are seven steps. And I implore you to read the book Crucial Conversations by Patterson um, Milliken et al. I'll show you a reference at the very end of our talk so you know what you're buying on Amazon. But there are seven steps and I wanna show that the first four, start with heart, learn to look, make it safe and master your stories. Those are all internal things that you would be doing before you even engage in the crucial conversation. The fifth and sixth, you're sort of working interpersonally with the other person in the conversation. And the seventh is that move to action. So, so much of a crucial conversation happens before you even utter a word. And as we go through each of the steps, it'll be important for us to understand how we can do that work and prepare ourselves before we engage in a crucial conversation. Because as much as we might be able to plan an intervention for a loved one who is having a substance abuse problem, there may be an issue that arises within a meeting where you weren't anticipating the distress or the discord that gets um, percolated to the surface from an initiative you've planned. And how do you deal with that? the first four steps help us to understand maybe why we're gonna react the way we react and give us strategies to deal with that in the moment. So we don't have to resort to our fight or flight responses. So this is the dialogue model that the Crucial Conversations book Demonstrates for how to have a crucial conversation and some of the principles that underlie that. And I want to particularly focus on the two circles, the three circles actually in the center. You see at the top, there's a, the circle of silence and violence at the bottom. And I want to take a moment to talk about what those mean. Since we've been talking about psychological stress inducing fight or flight, I'm not going to fight, I'm not going to physically run away, both psychologically, what I might do if I was to disengage from a conversation, I might withdraw. I might physically have no response. I might become quiet. I might avoid the topic. Or I might mask the topic. I might move to something else. I might use a joke. I might transition a little bit just to take the edge off the topic. So you may have experienced this if you've been sitting in a meeting and perhaps your boss or your employer says to you, so what do you guys think about that? and then there's crickets. It's a deafening silence. No one has given any indication of how they feel, but most likely they're probably not all in agreement. Why is the group exhibiting silence? Well, probably because as we get to the next circle in the model, there's not the safety in the environment to be able to actually engage in sharing their opinion, that their opinion is not invited They may not feel welcome. They may feel that whatever they share may be held against them or may be in the minority groups and they don't want to be ostracized. For whatever reason, the participants in that conversation don't feel safe. And that's not a good place to be for optimal team functioning. The bottom of the circle, the opposite. So now that's that's basically our flight response, silence. Our fight response is violence. And thankfully, in this situation, I'm not talking about violence physically. But if we think about violent communication, the term violent is used for anything that's intended to inflict harm or pain. We can certainly communicate in ways that inflict harm and pain intentionally. And some of those ways that you may have seen or perhaps engaged in, because as we all have, we're all human, in violent communication is by using controlling behavior. And that's when you create in such hyperbole of a situation or you cut off another member of the team such that you really dominate the narrative. You don't allow someone else's opinion to even take hold or be shared because you are just so prominent in that conversation. You may label someone else in the conversation using derogatory terms, saying that they're a fool, they're, they don't know, they're, they must be too inexperienced or too out of touch. There's probably many worse words that I won't use here in Grand Rounds. But we all know what labeling feels like and we all know that labeling doesn't feel good on the receiving end. And a last of course is attacking. So labels can in and of themselves be attacking, but we can also attack wider groups more non-specifically. And I think we've seen lots of really unfortunate um, attacking types of communication on a macro scale culturally and even unfortunately on micro scales as we look at the news. And so how do we move past the silence, violence, and come to that middle point, right? That nice middle of the circle where it's me and then others on the side. You want to focus first on yourself. What are the facts? What do I know to be true? What's my story? What's my opinion about that? How do I feel about that? And how do I act on that? So we'll start with principle one. Start with heart. Work on me first and us second. So because you may be encountering a situation where a crucial conversation just pops up and you're not expecting it to happen, what are ways that you can try to keep yourself from that silence, violence, fight or flight and keep yourself grounded in the middle where you can really try to engage in a productive dialogue? I have three suggestions for you. When something pops up and you're not expecting it, you're not able to plan for how you're gonna approach this challenging situation, ask yourself three questions. What do I really want for me? So if I'm engaging in a conversation with a family and they're in the hospital, they're very stressed out, their child is sick, there's a lot of unknowns, things are moving quickly, and they're expressing distrust, anger, frustration. These are all common things that families of hospitalized children express to us on occasion. What I really want for me is I want this conversation to be easier. I want to be able to get out of this room feeling like I did a good job, feeling like I was heard, and feeling like perhaps my medical recommendation was heeded. But what do I want for you? Imagining you are the frustrated, angry, scared parent. I want you to feel like I'm paying attention to you. I want you to feel like I'm engaged. I want you to feel like I understand your problem. And what I want for the relationship is that we're able to balance that I understand your needs, but you also understand mine. So when something pops up and you're not expecting a crucial conversation to have to happen, ask yourself, what do I really want for me? What do I really want for you? And what do I really want for our relationship? And that grounds everything. And that reminds us that there is me in this, there is you in this, and there is an us in this as well. And so... One of the Connecticut children's um, axioms of assume positive intent, I think, really underlies that kind of set of questioning, right? Assume that there's a reasonable reason why someone would want or engage in this type of behavior or have this type of request of me. If your goals, as you ask yourself, what do I really want from me, is to win the argument, is to avoid the conflict, or to punish someone else for making us feel badly. I think if that's your knee-jerk response, then you know you're not in the right mindset to engage in this conversation. You may need to either ask yourself these questions again once you've realized that that's your stated goal, or take a minute, take a step back. Unfortunately, research shows that if you ask yourself to take four deep breaths or you count to 10, that's actually not necessarily going to change your response. So research out of Google. Just that high-performing teams are ones in which the people can identify social cues in one another. So looking at people's faces and saying, ooh, you seem upset right now. Ooh, this person seems angry. Ooh, this person seems sad or anxious. And they're able to share in the dialogue. So you're able to physically share time. You're not dominating the conversation. You're not overbearing in the conversation you're not absent in the conversation. So you may need to step away and withdraw temporarily to have a more productive conversation, but you can't withdraw forever. You gotta come back to the conversation. Next, I wanna talk about the fool's choice. It's an interesting concept and it's one I think we learn really young, probably around kindergarten age. And that's the concept that you either have to be honest, express your opinion, or keep a friend. And that's when we tell kids it's okay to tell a little white lie. Susie, yes, I love that hat. You don't love that hat. That hat is so ugly. But you're not gonna hurt little Susie's feelings because of your opinion, because it doesn't really much matter. It's not worth losing a friend. Unfortunately, should I be honest or kind when we're five, might make us nice, five-year-olds. But it spirals. And as we grow and mature and engage in more complicated conversations and more challenging relationships and more high-stakes conversations, that turns into, should I make my point or should I let you win? Should I say what I think or should I sow loyalty? Should I hold my ground or admit your point? Should I speak confidently or make it safe for you to disagree with me? So the secret is not that there's really always an or in that conversation, right? That question should not have an or in it, it should have an end. How can I be honest and kind? How can I say what I think and show loyalty? How can I speak confidently and make it safe for you to disagree? So learn to look is principle two. So pay attention for when a conversation turns crucial right? The most high functioning teams at Google are ones who are able to look at each other in the face, which unfortunately I can't see any of your faces, but you can see mine. And you can see if I'm looking anxious, if I'm looking angry, if I'm seeming withdrawn, sad. And that's what we can use in clinical medicine as we approach a bedside of a frustrated, angry, withdrawn family, right? We can look and see what are they giving me with their body language? Are there physical, emotional, or behavioral signs that are showing me that something about this conversation is more than just a transaction? Look again for signs that the safety of the conversation is at risk. Is myself or the other person beginning to engage in silent or violent communication behaviors? And look for outbursts of your own style under stress. So There are lots of conflict management inventories that are out there. But are you the type of person who likes to command a situation, likes to compete, likes to have yourself be the winner for the sake of winning? Are you someone who abdicates and really avoids conflict? Are you someone who accommodates and kind of gives over to someone else? We all vacillate through lots of different modes of conflict management. But at our base level, there are ways that we tend to respond. So I encourage if you don't have a good insight of how you respond to look through some of those conflict management inventories and see what might be the way that you typically respond. If you can't do that reflecting through your experiences and you want a little bit more help, um, the Thomas Kilman inventory is one that I found to be quite helpful. And know that conflict management styles change over time. So who you were three years ago might not be how you manage conflict today. Principle number three is to make it safe. So without safety, any further discussion is futile. If you're engaging in silence and violence and I can't speak my mind, there is no conversation really to be had. So if you can try to step out of the content and restore that safety by apologizing, if it's appropriate, by clarifying your intentions, saying, I don't want you to think that I don't value your opinion. I'm just meant to share that I think this is the best course of action because I'm worried about X, Y, Z. And clarify your mutual purpose. At work setting, we can always come back and say, I just want what's best for the patient. Is this in the patient's best interest? And the last step that's really internal work that you need to do before you approach the conversation is master your story. Facts and opinions are in fact different. Separate what the truth of the matter is, the facts, the objective observable behaviors from what you tell yourself about those things. So in an example where a team member isn't pulling their weight on a group initiative, say, you were assigned three tasks for this project, but it looks like you really were only able to meet the deadline for one of them. It's happened a couple of times now on Project X and Y. Can we sit down and have a talk about that? But if you go in with your story and say, you're lazy, you're not part of the group, you don't value us. I bet you were that kid in college who made everyone else do their work. I bet you just skated by and you're doing that again now. That's telling a story about what's going on that doesn't really tell the other person exactly what the facts are about what you're upset about or what your concern is. And watch out for three clever stories. So we can tell ourselves that we're the victim it's not my fault. The villain. It's all your fault. They make me work too much. They put too many unrealistic deadlines. It's their fault, or that you're the helpless story. The princess in the ivory tower. There's nothing else I can do. I'm just stuck here. That leads to inaction. And then tell yourself the rest of the story. So what is the truth? What is my opinion of that? What does that feed into? What notion and what story have I created that these facts are then supporting? And how can I actually reconcile those two things to be able to move forward and present my concern in a way that's actually something that's actionable by the other party? And this is when you state that path, right? You share your facts. You tell your story. And you ask for the other person's path. So in the example of the team member who's not pulling their weight, you explain to them why you feel, what observable behavior you feel they have not exhibited that you would like them to exhibit. How that impacts you and your team's functioning perhaps. And ask them to share a little bit about how they see the situation. Those first three, S-T-A of state, are things that how, what you're gonna say in the conversation. The final T and the E are be the how you speak it. You're going to talk tentatively, right? I can't assume another person's story. I I don't know your truth. I don't know your situation. I really do want you to share it with me, but if I come bombarding like a bull in a china shop, you're probably not going to feel safe enough to tell me what's really going on. And encourage testing, which really means allow for different options to come up. So if you're working through a problem and there's multiple solutions, encourage throwing them all on the table and working through them one by one. So as you explore the other person's path in step six, you wanna ask for their path. You wanna mirror what they're showing you. So it looks like from your body language, you're still feeling a little uncomfortable with what we're talking about, or you're really not quite on board with this. Is that right? You can paraphrase. If they've been able to share with you what they've been feeling, then paraphrase and make sure you actually do understand what they're saying and clarify their intent. And lastly, if they're not giving you much, then you gotta prime it. You gotta say, look, I really need I this is really important to me. Share that common purpose. I really want the patient to get the best care. I really want to come to an agreement about where we should have this bridal shower. What please, what can I do to help you talk to me about it? And that's pouring yourself into that pool of shared meaning, back from the dialogue slide um, in the beginning, pouring yourself into that center circle saying, I'm really invested. Ironically, Voltaire said lecture is a form of attack. I say ironically because here I am talking to you about talking, and I haven't had a chance to hear back from you guys yet. As we finish up the talk, I really want to hear your perspectives and your opinions on this all. Some traps to avoid as we finish up about crucial conversations is to avoid coming to a decision and having violated expectations or inaction. So it is a shame that we went through all those six steps. We did all this work. we worked on ourselves before we engage in a crucial conversation. We really try to focus and remain true to ourselves and our purpose. We really try to pour ourselves and our good intentions into a shared pool so that the other can meet us there and we can come to a, a decision, united. But if at the end of the conversation, we don't make it actionable, then it's all just talk. So we need to identify the actions who is going to do what and by when. There needs to be clear expectations for the deliverables, with a follow-up time, and an actual follow-through to hold everyone accountable. So if I'm talking with a nurse at a bedside, I'm going to go more to this lab, I'm going to come back and reassess in 30 minutes. If the patient is doing this with their breathing, this is my next step. And you have to actually go back to the bedside. Telling a family, oh, I'll come back in and check later. You got to actually come back. So those are important ways to actually solidify and move that united decision into an action that takes us forward. And then we've completely broken that stuck conversation, that stuck issue loop. We've made an action. We may need to revisit that issue and say, did our action, did our decision actually result in the outcome we wanted? But that's continual process improvement. That's growth. That's development. That's what we want. So what happens when there's a power differential? So say it's myself as a faculty and an educator speaking with a student. There's a clear power differential there. And I may have to approach the situation differently, knowing that I'm in a position of authority. Or what if I am approaching someone who is in a position of authority over me? I may have different stated goals and concerns about voicing my concerns to someone who has a position of power. So that's the concept of facilitative feedback, where you want to try to meet the other person in the middle, regardless of whether you are in a position of authority or the other person is. Right? If that power differential is unbalanced, try to meet in the middle. So the concept of giving feedback to someone who is a little bit lower on the power scale than you, you want to assure that they understand that you're there with the stated purpose of growing, developing them and their skills. And the same is true when there's someone that's in a higher position than you. You still want to grow and develop their skills, but you may have to approach it in a slightly different way, because they may not be looking for feedback from you in the same way their student is looking for weekly feedback from me. And so one of the authors of Crucial Conversations actually touches on feedback and says that the biggest predictor of whether people become defensive when presented with feedback is not the elegance of delivery, is the motive behind it. So if we approach feedback by saying, I want to work with you so that we can improve on this issue, that's going to be much more likely to be successful than if it's just simply a critique or worse, something that's not stated and festers behind the scenes. So the goals of facilitative feedback are growth and development, exploring awareness, collaboration and guidance, and engagement. So I think when you're talking about a student, you can easily make the story about why you want to grow and develop their skills, why you want to engage them in the process. And Dr. Joanne Crowley and I have used this facilitative feedback technique with our UConn medical students to try to engage them more in their process. And it has actually resulted in the students feeling more engaged, feeling that the feedback that's provided by our faculty is more useful. But if you're talking about giving feedback to your boss, that can be pretty intimidating sometimes, depending on the culture of safety in your group, and sometimes you may need to start by simply exploring the other person's awareness of the issue. Something like, hey, I noticed this has happened a couple of times. Have you seen this? Are you aware of this? And it may be about how the boss interacts during a meeting, or it may be how the leader elicits other people's opinions when there's varied options. But that may be the first step at engaging in facilitative feedback, bringing the other party to the table. They may not be privy to the fact that there's something to come to the table for. And then you can work on collaboration with perhaps other people that are feeling the same way and the leader of your division or your department or your group to achieve meaningful change. And as I finish in the final couple of minutes, I want to talk about what happens if our crucial conversation isn't based in conflict. I've been very fortunate and honored to be caring for many children in this past year at the end of their life. I've had to have really heavy conversations with families, some of whom that I haven't known for very long. That their children with medical complexity are exhibiting deterioration. That was concerning enough to me to say, I think your child is approaching death. Those are very heavy words to say, and probably very heavy words to hear at 8:45 on a Tuesday morning. But I implore you in these final five minutes to not only engage in a crucial conversation when it is about a conflict, it's about improving your team and maybe getting something, you know, betterment of the student or your working relationship, don't shy away from this type of hard conversation. Because this might be the best thing that you can do for a family when they're going through what these types of families are going through. And what I find is people are very nervous, myself included, about engaging in these conversations sometimes because they have two main fears. The first fear is that they are going to harm the patient. They are going to engender so much anxiety and distress by bringing up an end-of-life issue. You will not. It's actually been shown that it's much more therapeutic to begin a conversation about end-of-life issues and end-of-life care and wishes and quality of life and goals prior to when a child is exhibiting deterioration or is at the immediate impending end-of-life It may not always be possible, but for our children with medical complexity, a lot of the time it is. And so this is an area where I hope that some of our um, inpatient providers as well as our outpatient colleagues are able to feel a little bit more comfortable about beginning those conversations. And I know our palliative care division is always very helpful and willing to engage with families well before the immediate hours of their death, and that's actually preferred. And the second reason people don't engage in these conversations is because they're anxious. They don't know what to do. They feel like their anxiety is going to then transfer to the patient and the family. Anxiety is normal for both the patients and the parents and the clinicians during these conversations. So everything you're feeling is normal. It's not something we want to do every day. There are some special people in this world who have chosen that as their career, but most of us have not. It's okay to feel a little uncomfortable But hopefully with these tips of how to go about introducing a deterioration conversation, you may feel this much more comfortable at beginning one. So if you notice that a patient has come back several times for a recurrent issue, has demonstrated a subtle decline in their breathing, their neurologic functioning, their ability to feed, whatever you're noticing, the first thing you need to do is give a direct and honest prognosis. When desired. So you have to, you have an obligation as a clinician to share that observation, right? I've noticed that Johnny has come back now several times for aspiration pneumonia. I noticed that over the course of the past week, Adam hasn't quite woken up in the way he has in the past. I wonder what that means for him. Allow the silence to set in and be present in that moment. What you are sharing is something that is going to engender some thoughts on the part of the receiver, some really potentially big, heavy, scary thoughts. We all think silence lasts way longer than it actually does in practice. So give that five, seven seconds. Really allow it to sink in before you even make your next statement where you are acknowledging and exploring the emotions of whatever it is that you're noticing and how that, how sharing that information has impacted the receiver, the patient's mother, the patient's father. And focus on the quality of life and the fears and concerns. So I know our palliative care division does a great job of asking, what does a good life mean to you? What does suffering mean to you? You may have that information because You may have already asked that, or palliative care may have already asked that. But if you don't know what that means for a family, ask. Really invite the conversation of what, when he's been the happiest, what has he been doing? And that may inform your decision about whether you say, let's hold off on oral feeding, or let's continue. Understanding the medical consequences of what that might be, but understanding we're doing this with a goal, not to preserve lung functioning at this point, is to focus on comfort and quality of life. And lastly, that's when you make your recommendation. So you understand the facts. You've allowed the other person to process it. You've shared everything you know. And the last step is to make a recommendation. So based off of the fact that you really know that she hates BiPAP, and right now we're we're seeing that she needs that BiPAP 24-7. I wonder if this isn't the time that we talk about removing that bypass and allowing her body to go through the process of death as comfortably as possible. What you don't want to do is you don't want to dominate the discussion. You really want the family to be an equal, if not greater participant in the conversation than you. You want to do much more empathetic and active listening than you do sharing. And you don't want to prematurely reassure. You want to respond to emotions Don't respond to emotions with facts. Don't focus solely on the medical. That's a a technique of withdrawing, kind of masking the conversation. Allow the hard emotions to sit there and be discussed. And so the way that you do that, I've alluded to a little bit, is the wish-worry-wonder framework. So you start with three statements. I wish, and that allows you to align with the patient's hopes. I wish that this time, she also will bounce back to her previous level of functioning the same way that she did all the times before. I worry that because now we're seeing changes with her seizure activity, her pupillary response, her ability to feed, that this time we might not be in the same place we were last time. I wonder if now is not the right time to bring family in to visit stop certain invasive interventions that do not fit their quality of life, move towards comfort-focused care, work towards getting home with support. So that's a way that you can frame three sentences to be able to get actually through a conversation about a deterioration. You can share your, your thoughts, you can give your recommendation, and you can allow for the family then to give you their emotional reaction move forward with a united decision about what to do. So in my final moment, I wanna give you some take-home points. You can have a successful, crucial conversation. Focus on those seven steps. And really, if you take anything away, focus on what you really want out of the conversation. Make sure that the goal is a noble one, not to win or to blame or to attack or avoid, and remain engaged and open-minded when exploring another person's views. Limit your use of the word or, if you can, and I'll also add the word but and just to just when you intend to draw contrast or minimize. And I use that just on purpose. When giving feedback, make the other person your ally. Bring them in, guide them, and facilitate a conversation. And lastly, you are allowed to be anxious about a crucial conversation, no matter if it's about end of life care or not. But if it is, Use wish, worry, wonder to frame the three sentences that you say to the family to begin that conversation and then allow the silence and the emotional processing that happens after that. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak today. Here are some of the titles of books that I highly recommend as well as some of my um, references for the recommendations today. I want to thank you all for tuning in and listening to me either live or in the recording. And I want to thank these little two goobers, my four and Mm two-year-old, who give me plenty of opportunity to engage in crucial conversations on a daily basis. And so with that, I'd love to hear any commentary and answer any questions you all may have.
0: Ali, thank you so much. I mean, that was uh, simply stupendous. I mean, it was really, learned a lot. I'm not sure I want to meet with you next time, though. I'm <laughs> gonna have to prep before I have a faculty meeting with you. I'm glad it's I'm an doing it, not me. Um, so thank you. We we have a a, a couple of questions, and then please, uh, if for those of you on the on the Zoom, uh, go ahead and put the questions in the Q and A. This is ah uh, relevant for our times. From uh, Dr. Blummer, one of our pediatricians, uh, it's often said never talk about politics or religion. How do you handle it when you're confronted with one of these conversations?
2: I think it's very easy to be honest in that situation. I think it's, you can have a somewhat canned response of, you know, it really is a challenging time out there, isn't it? We all have, there's so many different ways to think about problems and to kind of conceptualize and talk about that. I'd love to hear more about your perspective, if that's appropriate, to to the conversation. If it's an offhand comment and it's, basically trying to detract from something else, you might want to actually just let it pass you by. Um, So if you're in the office and a family is making some kind of commentary about access to healthcare and things like that, if you can get to the root of, well, why is this person expressing their view? Is there a need that's being unmet, um, that this person is using maybe this kind of offhanded or flippant or potentially controversial comment to get some sort of reaction? out of me or to show that there's something that I need to do to help them meet their needs. Um, So I don't know if that's the best answer for everything. um, But I think we shouldn't shy away from having true conversations when we have the ability and the time to do that. If they're in the office with you, you probably have other things to focus on. uh, But if there's something that that comment hits on that might impact the child's care, then use it that point to pivot.
0: Great, thank you. Great clarification. That was very good. Um, learner feedback can be tough when you lack authentic observations of your own or knowledge of the criteria for judgment. How do we get the time and engagement of faculty or faculty development to address the need for authentic authentic conversations um, that are based on the learner feedback?
2: That's very true. The most authentic, most genuine, most helpful feedback really comes from someone who is able to directly observe the learner in the situation that they're performing in um, and really understands what the expectations of that learner are. So I would say first, if you don't feel like you have the clarity for what the expectations are, then that is absolutely the first thing that needs to be addressed. If you have access to the forms that need to be required, I would suggest looking them over before the observation happens or reaching out to the leader in that field. So if it's medical student education, I know myself and Dr. Crowley would be happy to go over exactly what it means to be performing at an expected level above or below. We've tried to do a little bit more in terms of defining that on forms, but certainly in faculty development efforts. The second part of your question is a really challenging one, and I think that's more of a systems-based Uh, challenge um, that I don't know that individually we're going to be able to address one-on-one. But if you're not able to actually be with a student to observe how they're performing, how they took that history, how they did that physical exam, then it begs the question of, are you the best person to be evaluating them? And if the answer from someone like myself or Dr. Crowley is, yes, you are, you need to understand why. And you have to have high quality data and commentary from your colleagues or whoever else is getting that observational data to be able to sift through and say, okay, these are very high quality comments. These are telling me exactly about observable behaviors that if I were physically present, I could say, yes, that history was thorough. Yes, that seems like an unprofessional remark. so that you can actually make that judgment for yourself. A lot of it comes with time and practice. So I would say if you feel like you don't understand the expectations, that's the first thing that needs to be clarified. And if you feel like you might not have the best data, then that's something we need to get to the bottom too, as well, so I would encourage you to reach out to the leaders of the educational program in which you're responsible for feedback to talk about these issues a little bit further because they definitely will hinder the feedback that you're able to provide, for sure.
0: Thank you. That's a great clarification Uh, from Sarah Mackey. This is absolutely wonderful. How would you suggest approaching feedback and conversations involving power dynamics when the higher-level individual is not open, welcoming, or inviting?
2: So then, I would encourage you to form a really good foundation for your concern. So, if the person that you're trying to engage in feedback in doesn't have the responsibility, though, I would I would argue that all of our leaders have the responsibility to hear the thoughts of those um, direct reports but I would say you arm yourself with a lot of the data so really do a good job of compiling what it is that you're concerned about and why and if there are others who feel similarly similarly or have di- similar experiences don't fish them out or make it some sort of you know fishing expedition but if there are a group of people who have a concern then perhaps, it will be more vocal, it will be more powerful for you to vocalize that concern as a group. The chief residents have a joint concern about this. And schedule a definitive time with that person to meet one-on-one in private or via Zoom um, so that you can have that conversation with an agenda set up. With a little bit of a pre-warning to the person, say, I'm I'm really looking to meet with you. This is my concern. This is almost my my S-bar of the situation, my situation, my background. Let's work towards an action and improvement. Can we meet on Thursday at 1 o'clock to discuss that? So I would say really come armed with the data that you need to make a strong argument and any friends um, or any other powerful groups that would be important and try to meet with the person individually to discuss it.
0: Uh, how do you, uh, this is from Dr. McGilpin, and how do you get the patient's primary pediatrician involved uh, in the end-of-life decision, it, you know, with hospitals more in charge of the patient during the care, and sometimes they don't go back to the pediatrician for a long, long time. So how do you get that for the crucial conversation with the family? What is your, your thought on that?
2: So the pediatricians can be very, very helpful because, as you mentioned, Dr. McGilpin, we as hospitals may not have the, mo- the most uh, long-term relationship with the families. I may be on for a week, and then my colleague may be on for the next. But you, as their primary pediatrician, have seen this child grow and develop, presumably over the course of years. So I know recently in one one case um, of, a, of a young child who, who died in our hospital um, with end-of-life care, her primary pediatrician was part of every meeting She was wonderfully accessible, which I know can be a challenge for those of you in the office seeing patients. But she met with us during family meetings. She participated in conversations and even was able to um, visit at the end of the patient's life. It was so wonderful that we were all on the same page about that. And I think it gave this primary pediatrician a sense of closure as to the fact that we in the hospital weren't giving up on the patient. We were really doing what was in the patient's best interest and allowed her to be a very powerful ally. So I would say we should certainly be reaching out to you guys um, as the hospitalists back to the primary pediatricians when we have such a change in level of care and if we're not doing a good job of that we need to know. Um, But also I think we can include you guys a little bit more as well um, in actually those conversations if you're available.
0: And uh, the last question from Dr. Corcoran, uh, uh, just a comment, I guess, is as the primary pediatricians, we may not even know what's going on in the hospital. Um, so, you know, she urges, and I know you, you guys try to do this to, you know, to get, get the calls, to get them involved, not just in end of life, but in any decision making. And I think, you know, we have outstanding primary care docs which can help the the hospitalist team to to make those conversations. So it's just a comment from Dr. Corcoran which I think I agree with.
1: Absolutely,
0: Uh, I I have one last question, and uh, that's my own question: is uh, in the Zoom era (laughs) um, and uh, in the mask era, (laughs) uh, how does that make crucial conversations less authentic? If you you know you're behind a camera or behind a mask,
2: I have found that I've been fortunate. The way that I work is I am always present at the bedside with families. I've been masked this whole year, so I think you still can get a lot from people. We're most expressive with our eyes. So for the most part, you're still able to see people's eyes, but fortunately, sometimes not their mouth um, with how they're emotionally feeling about things. So I think masks don't necessarily take away your ability to read body language. There's a lot of other things that are not mouth focused about body positioning, kind of seated positioning, eye contact. All that types of stuff that you're able to see with a mask in place. Zoom does make things a little bit harder. It's much harder to connect with someone when you're speaking to a camera. Um, I would say that the things you can do to maximize your chance of connecting with someone via Zoom is to make sure that the distractions are minimal, that you're presenting yourself in a way that is professional with, you know, your professional background, you know, there's not your kids or your spouse walking behind you when you're having this conversation, Um, but also that the receiver is set up in a place where they're able to be not distracted, where they're able to hear you, where you're able to hear them. I know we've had a lot of difficulty with family meetings where the volume is off and the ability to actually hear is off. So we've actually learned to move the little Zoom um, iPad stand to different areas and to physically snuggle it up next to you, whoever is speaking. Um, it makes things much more challenging, but I think without that basic ability to hear and, and see, you have stand no shot of being able to connect.
0: Right. Well, again, thank you very much for an outstanding Grand Rounds. Um, thank you, Anand, for bringing her to Connecticut Children's, a uh, uh, truly you know, uh, uh, amazing uh, new leader. Really look forward to many, many years of uh, outstanding work, Ali. So thank you very much. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Please go ahead and submit your evaluations for this wonderful presentation. And then we'll see you again on Friday with Dr. Shriver for the Ask the Experts and the next Tuesday for Grand Rounds. Take care and be safe. Bye-bye.